chapter 5. We're going to skim through certain things here in the next couple of chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But I want you to, to get an overview of, uh, of this great passage of Scripture that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, early in his ministry, went up to the Mount of Beatitudes, what we know of as the Mount of Beatitudes, and um, taught what every Bible scholar agrees is the ultimate sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is considered to be the finest preaching as far as information is concerned, as far as the things of God and spiritual things are concerned. And so we want to start, let me just read a couple of verses here, beginning in Matthew 5, 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was sent, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they which mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my name. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for, your, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now obviously Jesus starts off uh, in this great sermon talking about hard issues. He's talking about the inside of man, the real you. And the results that the right character and the right attitudes bring. He then goes on to talk about salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the earth. Live your life out front where everybody can see the life of God in you. He talks about fulfilling the law, not uh, uh, doing away with it. He talks about anger issues and other heart issues. He talks about lust of the flesh and, uh, and so forth. Many other important and great topics that are included here in this sermon. He speaks on divorce. He talks about not swearing by anything in heaven. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. He talks about not retaliating against people when they come against you. He talks about giving. He, talks, he gives them the Lord's Prayer. He talks about things that, uh, that are necessary in our everyday life. He talks about in chapter 7 not being judgmental. By the way, the Bible says a spiritual man judges all things. So not being judgmental does not mean don't judge things. It means don't judge people. And then he winds up talking about the importance of doing this word. He speaks of uh, trees and the fruit that they produced. He speaks about people's relationship with him. Then he talks about beginning in chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. So he's talking about results. He's talking about putting the word to work in your life and living according to the things that he has just identified as being the right way or having the right attitudes and so forth. He talks about the storm that comes upon the, the house that's built on the rock and the house that's built on sand. The one that's built on the rock, of course, the rock of his word, the word of God, the rock of Jesus being the, the Messiah and the Savior of mankind. And, uh, and those that fail to do that, the same storms take them under and cause them to, to uh, uh, operate in destruction. But then at the last part, the very last part of chapter 7, after Jesus had ended these things, after he finished preaching the greatest sermon, and, and everybody agrees, everybody acknowledges, the Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing like it. But I want to start reading in verse 28 of Matthew 7. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine just simply means teaching. They're astonished. Now, put yourself in their position. You've just heard the greatest discourse, the greatest sermon that anybody could ever preach. He has covered virtually every aspect of human life. 
He's talked about heart issues, as we mentioned before. He talked about what blessings come from being doers of the word. He talks about anything and everything that anybody would ever want to know, in principle at least, maybe not specifically, but in principle, anybody, uh, what anybody would want to know about God and the kingdom of heaven and so forth. And the people are astonished at his doctrine. This is their takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the Holy Ghost identifying for us, and this is what the people got from Jesus' teaching. Are you with me? What did they get? Well, it said they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, we've made this point before, and I want to make it again. I don't think you can make it too often. Notice the word one in verse 29. I think it's verse 29, isn't it? Yeah. Notice the word one. Anytime you see a word italicized like the word one is in verse 29 of Matthew 7, it means the translators added that. It means they're trying to enhance our understanding of what's being said or what's being communicated. But the word one is not in there. I think, and obviously this is speculation to some degree on my part, but I don't know anything else. Nothing else makes sense of why this would fit. I believe that the reason the translators are putting that in there is because when it says, when it starts talking about authority, their focus, the translator's focus, is on Jesus having authority. But that's not what this says. They were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. They were astonished at the the Sermon on the Mount and all the aspects of what Jesus covered of spiritual life and natural life and so forth. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as having authority. Now, if you look up these words, as having, that phrase, as having, you'll find out that it means a couple of different things. There are several different ways it could be translated. The word as is a a, a word that pertains to the manner of something. We would use the word how. Because the, the manner in which something is done or the manner in which something takes place, that is descriptive for us, to us as how something occurs. And that's what this word as means. Now, the word uh, having, as having authority, the word having means to hold. So if you translate it literally, and I don't know why the translators didn't do it. Maybe it, it went against their understanding of God and Jesus and whatever. I know people get all bent out of shape today when you start talking about the authority of the believer. But if you translate these words literally, the people were astonished at his teaching, for Jesus taught them how to hold authority. Now, here's what I want you to get. Here's the main point that I want you to get. The people took from the Sermon on the Mount the fact that man had authority. I never heard that taught in Bible school. I never heard that taught in Sunday school. But that's the takeaway. That's the Holy Ghost takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught man how to hold authority. Now, the Bible rule is in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That means we can't build a doctrine on this scripture or any one scripture that's not backed up and confirmed by others. We all understand that, right? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, how far back do I want to go with this? Um, Well, let's start in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. This is after Jesus has called some of his disciples. His his, uh, ministry has begun in the early stages of his ministry. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. Verse 22, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority. Now, notice here the word one is not in italics. It's in the original Greek. But the phrase is the same, as having, or as had, authority, means exactly the same thing, exactly the same words. So let's... let's translate this literally, and they were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching, for he taught them how one has authority, or how one holds authority, and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, 
saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? We know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Verse 27. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine? Same word, teaching. What new doctrine or teaching is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Now here it indicates that Jesus is the one exercising authority by casting out the devil of the, the unclean spirit out of the man in the synagogue. And, and the people are amazed. Notice in this case how um, the display of power, the releasing this man from the power of the devil. Notice how the display of power is connected with the teaching. Why in the world would they be astonished at his doctrine? Why in the world would they be shocked and say, what new thing is this? Get that, folks. It's new to them. Nobody ever taught them this before. Jesus is teaching them something very interesting, very new, very specific. And it results in a display of authority. The teaching results in the display of authority. Look with me to Luke chapter 4. Here's the second witness of holding authority in the teaching and the ministry Jesus did concerning the holding of authority. Luke's account in verse 31 of chapter 4, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days, and they were astonished at his doctrine. Here's the third time it says this. They were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Folks, I want you to understand something. So much of the church world is afraid of the devil and afraid of what he's going to do, afraid of what he can do, afraid of what he threatens to do, and yada, 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 yada. Notice what the devil is concerned with. The clock that's ticking on him. The devil is concerned with the destruction that's in their future. So all the time the devil's telling you what he's going to do to you and how he's going to destroy you and destroy your life and destroy everything good about your life and all this other kind of stuff. Know for a certainty, know for a fact, this is the devil's real concern. My time is running out. Obviously, he wants to milk the last second, as indicated by what the evil spirit says. And Jesus rebuked him, verse 35, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? Now, this word, word, is a different word than doctrine, but you can see that he's talking about the teaching. What a doctrine, what a word, what a teaching is this. For with authority and with power, he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. So we've got three witnesses. Where on all three places. Now now some people might look at this and say, well, yeah, but the one in Mark chapter 1 and one in Luke chapter 4. Those are all times, or those are both talking about the same event or the same circumstance. Well, folks, I really believe that all of them are. I, don't, I think that, the, that Matthew just leaves out the account of where he cast out the devil from this guy. But irrespective of that, whichever way it goes, we've got two or three witnesses where the Bible is telling us that people were amazed and astonished at Jesus' teaching. There's a place where it says, uh, I I thought I had it in my notes, but uh, maybe I don't. There's a place that says that after the unclean spirit was cast out of the man, the people marveled that God had given authority unto men. They marveled, not that Jesus had authority alone, 
But they marveled because God had given this kind of authority unto men. Well, that had to be a part of Jesus' teaching. See, folks, if Jesus was here in our midst today preaching the message and he, if he cast out an unclean spirit or set somebody free in some way or another, if he's not teaching that this is the authority that God has given to mankind, then we're not going to be astonished at his teaching. We're not going to be amazed at the things that he said. We're going to be amazed at him and the things that he did. But we would take the position that most of the church world, or at least a, a good portion of the church world takes anyway, and says, well, yeah, Jesus did that because he was the son of God. Well, then what is he teaching? If Jesus is going around saying, and, and Luke chapter 4, remember the circumstances of Luke chapter 4. It's where he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And he stands up, he takes the, the scrolls and finds Isaiah 61, what we know of as Isaiah 61, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he sits down, gives the scrolls back to the rabbi, leader of the synagogue, sits down and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying this is specifically and literally talking about me. Now, I don't know how to confirm this, but there is some historical evidence. I don't know if it's foolproof evidence or not, but there's some uh, historical evidence that in the synagogues of that day, I don't even know if it's done the same way today or not, but just like at the, at the, uh, the Last Supper, the Passover feast, they set a table for, or set a, a setting, a place setting for Elijah. Well, similar to that, it has been said, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but it has been said that there was a special seat in the synagogue for the Messiah and that when Jesus sat down, he sat down in the Messiah's seat. Now, if that's true, everybody knows what he's saying about himself. Everybody knows. If he sits down in the Messiah's chair and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, there would be no question on anybody's mind what he's claiming to be or who he's claiming to be. None whatsoever. These messianic scriptures, these things that talk about what the Messiah will do, that's me. But you may also remember that they rejected him. Mark chapter 6 tells us, and Jesus there in Nazareth, his hometown of Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. And he marveled because of their unbelief. They wouldn't receive. They wouldn't believe what he said. Well, folks, isn't it interesting that the unbelief of, of the individuals in the, uh, that lived at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, isn't it, isn't it amazing to understand that their unbelief kept the Son of God from doing what God sent him to do? Now, I know with most denominational churches, that's impossible. Nothing can stop God from what he wants to do. But this tells a different story. This said that the people refused to accept Jesus. He marveled because of their unbelief, and as a result, he could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. That's Mark 6, 5. You need to look it up. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament words says of that word sick, it means weak or sickly, people that didn't have too much wrong with them. In other words, he might have been able to get a headache healed, but he didn't get any blind eyes open or any crippled people to walk. Now, folks, the people in Jesus' day, particularly the religious leaders, they questioned Jesus several times on his authority. It's interesting to me that when you see what this evil spirit in this man said, I know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the time or have you come to destroy us? It's interesting to me that they challenged his authority. They're literally saying, we know who you are. You're the son of God, but it's not time yet. They're challenging his authority to cast him out. And Jesus did as he always does with the devil. He says, shut up, come out. And he did. That's a good position to take with the devil. Just shut up. 
And he tried to counteract their unbelief by going around their villages teaching in the synagogues. He's trying to get them to believe the doctrine. He's trying to get them to believe the teaching. Because Jesus taught how to have authority. Jesus taught how to hold authority. He did not teach that this is special or unique only to me because of who I am. That's why Jesus identified himself as the son of man in most cases rather than the son of God. There were a couple of times where Jesus came right out and said, I'm the son of God. And that always got him in trouble. Because whenever he had identified himself as the son of God, he was talking about being one with the father. And the religious leaders couldn't handle that. But what I want you to see, folks, is that the Holy Ghost is giving us two or three witnesses. In every one of these situations, in every one of these cases, the Holy Ghost is inspiring Matthew, Mark, and Luke to all tell the same thing about Jesus' teaching and Jesus' doctrine about the exercise of authority. Now, why does that make sense? It really does make sense. But we have to go back a little bit and understand what makes it make sense. Genesis 126 says that God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have authority over the work of our hands and over all the earth. God made man for one sole purpose, and that was for him to have authority on the earth. Now, I know some people say, yeah, but God wanted a family, and that's true. He did then, he does now. And some people might say, and God wants to fellowship with man. And that's true. But nowhere does it say that God said, let us make man and have a family. Nowhere does this say, let us make man and have fellowship with it. But it does say very specifically that God said, let us make man and let him, or let us make man in our image and let him have authority. That would indicate, since there is nothing said about the other things, being a family, having fellowship, or any of the other type things that people claim as God's purpose for mankind. Since none of those things are mentioned, and authority is, that says to me that authority is the issue for God. Well, if that's true, and it has to be, if that's the main line and the main issue and the main topic, as far as God is concerned, then what would it make sense for Jesus to focus on when he was here, if not authority? Now I want you to turn with me to another scripture. I want you to look with me, with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to begin in verse, nine, uh, verse 1 of the ninth chapter. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And it, by the way, his own city was Capernaum. The Bible tells us about when he moved to Capernaum to start his ministry here on the earth. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy. That means he was crippled, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their face, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, What think ye? Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, he's asking him a question, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power, here's the word authority, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Then said he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed, and go into your own house. And he arose and departed to his house. Here's the verse I was trying to uh, mention before, verse 8. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power. Here's the word authority. Same word translated authority in the other cases. Which gave such authority unto men. Now, why are they not marveling that, they, that God has given that authority to Jesus? Why are they saying, why does the Bible tell us, why does the Holy Ghost very specifically, very deliberately why does the Holy Ghost say that they marvel because God had given this authority to men if Jesus had not been teaching and made cl clear and plain through his doctrine that authority was given to men on the earth? That mankind is the one who had authority on the earth. Look with me over to John chapter 5. I want you to see verses 26 and 27. By the way, there are a lot of things that... Uh, 
that we could say about this story in Matthew chapter 9. One thing that's important for you to realize is that three of the Gospels cover that. Again, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Three times the Bible tells us that Jesus tells us about the the event, the time where Jesus got the man healed by forgiving sins. Now, for God, that's a commonplace thing because sickness only came into the earth as a result of man's sin. Therefore, sin and sickness are, are completely melded together. Now, when you say that, you've got to clarify it because a lot of times people get the idea that that means if I'm attacked with sickness, there's sin in my life. And that's not what it means at all. But what it does mean is this. The payment, the price to pay for sin pays the price for sickness too. Since sin is the origin of sickness... And I'm talking about original sin. I'm talking about Adam's sin. I'm not talking about yours or mine personal sins. See, my personal sins didn't cause sickness to come into the earth. But Adam's did. So in that respect, and because of that, sin is always the root cause of every evil thing, including sickness and disease. So when Jesus raises the question to the Pharisees, when he asks them, which is easier to say? He's not trying to make a comparison between the difficulty of forgiving sins versus healing sickness. He's not trying to make any point other than forgiveness of sins and the price paid by him, which was the shedding of his blood, which he obviously had not done yet at this point in time that we're reading because he's still finishing his earthly ministry. But the fact that Jesus came to the earth to pay the price for sin. In God's mind, in God's system of justice, he enabled Jesus to take care of, to heal the sick, to break the bonds of sickness and disease because he was going to the cross to pay the price. Now, let me take a little side journey here. I want you to think of it a little bit. I know it'll be difficult for some, but give it a try. Jesus is forgiving this man's sin before he pays the price on the cross with his blood, right? It doesn't cause the man to be born again. That wasn't yet available. It doesn't remove sin from his life or from his existence to such a degree that he could not ever sin again. It's simply Jesus giving the man an advance notice or advance benefit on what his blood would do once it was shed on the cross. Right? Now, could Jesus, or anybody else for that matter, could sins be forgiven on the earth if Jesus' work on the cross was not for the forgiveness of sins or literally removal or redemption of sin? Do you understand what I'm asking? If Jesus was not going to the cross... To shed his blood, offer his blood as a sacrifice for man's redemption, which is the removal of sin, removal of sin nature, the dealing and doing away with Adam's original sin, as well as our individual sins. If Jesus was not going to do that work on the cross, is there any way in God's system of justice, in, uh, in, in any manner whatsoever, that he could have forgiven this man's sin there? Couldn't do it. The only reason he was able to do it when he did was because he was sent to the earth to be a sacrifice for sin. Aren't you ready to really think now? How then could he heal his sickness? See, if the price that Jesus paid on the cross, the offering and the shedding of his blood, was not sufficient for the removal of sins, then he couldn't have forgiven this man's sin. And if it wasn't to do a work, the offering of his blood was not to do a work for the physical body, then he couldn't have healed him either. God would have been unjust in giving the man a foretaste of what redemption would do and provide for us unless healing was included. Are you with me? One final point on that. 
If there's no provision made for the body in the redemptive work of Jesus, how can there be a resurrection? Resurrection is the resurrection of the body. It's not a change in spirit. It's not a change in your spirit nature. You won't have more eternal life when your body is redeemed than you have right now. The only thing that changes through the resurrection is the body. But if there, were, if there was no provision made for the physical body through the work of Jesus and the offering of his blood to pay the same price for sin as what he is indicating is paid for sickness as well, then there could be no resurrection. God is just. He has to do things right. He has to do things justly. And the reason why the Bible gives us the information it does is so that we can see the justice of God in action. So when Jesus says, which is easier to do? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or your, uh, arise, take up your bed and walk? As far as he's concerned, as far as God's concerned, it's one and the same because both are paid for. Both the spirit of man and the body of man. The Bible could not be clearer when we understand how things work. Did you find John 5 yet? Well, if you haven't yet, just forget about it and look on with your neighbor. <clears throat> Notice in verse 26, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given the Son to have life in himself. Jesus is saying, My life, the life that is in me, is of the Father. It's of the Father. It's the same quality of life. It's the same character, the same nature of life, the God kind of life that God has within himself. And notice in verse 27, and has given him, talking about God given to Jesus, authority is the same word that's used in all of these scriptures that we've looked at, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man. Notice he doesn't have authority to execute judgment because he's the son of God. He has authority to execute judgment on the earth because he's the son of man, because he was born into the earth as a man. Virgin birth bypasses the uh, spiritual death that passed on mankind through Adam's sin. But notice God has given him his, uh, authority to execute judgment on the earth because he's the son of man. In other words, Jesus is confirming what we see hinted at in all of these times that we've looked at where the people are astonished at his doctrine. He's teaching that man has authority on the earth. And that's what blows everybody away. So it stands to reason then that Jesus must have healed the sick after having taught that man has authority on the earth to show, to prove that authority over sickness and disease has been given to mankind. There can be no other explanation. I know this is thinking through things a lot further than a lot of people are willing to go. I get that. I understand that. Some people would rather just believe what their church teaches without checking it out or trying to figure it out for themselves. I get that. I regret that. But okay, if that's a position somebody wants to take, that's all right with me. But that doesn't mean I have to take that position. Do you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus is raised from the dead? He says he delivers to the disciples what, what is, known of, uh, is known as the Great Commission. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, all authority. King James translates it power, but it's the same word translated authority in all these other places. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Why in the world is Jesus, after being raised from the dead, concerned with authority? Why doesn't he just say, guys, I did it? All the sacrifices and day of atonement sacrifices and all the ritual sacrifices of the law of Moses, all that's done away with now because I've offered my blood, took my blood into the heavenly holy of holies as Paul told us about in Hebrews chapter 9. I've already been there. I've been, I'm come back. Now everything is changed 
but instead he comes back and talks about authority. I don't think, and I accept not everybody's going to think this way, and that's all right with me. doesn't bother me a bit. If I'm the only one that thinks this way, that doesn't bother me a bit either. But if you're going to come to this church, you're going to be sentenced to hearing it. Jesus comes back from paying the price for mankind and he talks about authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Then immediately he tells the disciples, go therefore into all the world. Authority has to have something to do with the work of the church. Authority has to have something to do with the intent or purpose or as it's called the great commission given to the church to teach all nations and make disciples of them. Why is authority such a big deal with God? Because God created man to have authority here on the earth. And if it's through ignorance that mankind fails to exercise that authority to do the work Jesus said we should do. And remember, Jesus said that he would build the church upon the knowledge of who he is, that he's the Messiah. Well, that knowledge after the resurrection for us means lived. He's literally telling the disciples, my mission to the earth was a a success. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. So when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry, John 5, 27 says God has given him authority to execute judgment on the earth. That means to destroy the works of the devil. Remember the Bible says, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. What did he do? He forgave sins, he healed. The sick, he set people free. He delivered them just like Isaiah 61 said that he would. So the execution of judgment against the devil and his work was given to Jesus. The authority to do those things was given to Jesus when he was here on the earth because he was the son of man. Because man has authority on the earth. That's why Jesus had to be made a man. It would have been unjust for God to come in some other way through an angel or some other manner. And do the things Jesus did and count that for the work of the Messiah. Because it was only Jesus becoming a man, coming to the earth as a man, as a human being, laying aside his heavenly power and glory. The power and the glory that he had with the Father before the creations of the world. The Bible says he laid that aside. And he came to the earth as a man. Why was that so necessary? And folks, it's an interesting thing. I don't know if you're a student of this type of stuff. But people that are students of early church writings, early church fathers, and so forth, the incarnation, the virgin birth, was huge in their teaching and in their doctrine. Huge. Because it provided a legal manner for Jesus to come to the earth, be born into the earth as a human being, and still bypass the spiritual nature that came upon mankind, the spiritual death that came upon mankind through Adam's sin. So when Jesus is here on the earth, he identifies that God has given him authority to execute judgment or destroy the power of the devil while he was here. Now that wasn't the full work or mission that Jesus had. That could only be accomplished through the the price that was paid on the cross and the three days and nights in the earth. But when he comes back in Matthew 28, he doesn't come back with just the authority to execute judgment on the earth. He comes back with all authority in heaven and in earth. And he immediately delegates it to the disciples. Go ye therefore. What does the therefore, therefore? Jesus is saying, because I've gotten all the authority in heaven and earth, I'll take care of things in heaven. You take care of things here on the earth. See, folks, Jesus is not a man anymore. He doesn't have a flesh and bone body which qualifies you for authority here on the earth. Jesus said said it himself to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Born of water is human birth, natural birth. Born of the Spirit, we know of, is the born-again experience that takes place when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we accept his sacrifice for us individually. Do you realize that Jesus cannot operate in the earth apart from his body? Paul makes much in several of the letters that he writes to the church. He makes much of the fact that we are the body of Christ. Why is that such a necessary element of doctrine? Because if God's going to do anything here on the earth, he's got to use his body. If he's going to do it legally, he has to use his body. What does that mean? That means he's either going to have people, family members, children, sons of God, to do the work that he intends for us to do. Jesus said the work that he did, we would do also. And even greater works than these shall we do because he goes to the Father. So that means he either has to work through us or he has to find one of us or some of us to pray to ask him to move so that he has authority to do what we're asking. Because man has authority on the earth, not God. When God gave man authority in the beginning, just because man fell, God didn't take it back. He couldn't take it back because he's just. Now, there's a lot of this stuff that we would just wink at and say, well, sure, go ahead and fudge this over, God. You take authority back since man messed it up so bad. But God does things in the right way. So when he gave man authority, it was not temporary authority. When he gave man authority, it was absolute authority. So whatever position man lost through the sin and the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Jesus regained every bit of that. John Wesley, the founder of the, West, uh, the Methodist movement, made a, a very interesting statement during the time that he was at the height of his popularity. He said this. He said, it seems that God can do nothing for mankind except man ask him to do it. Then he went further and said, why this is, we don't know. Well, I appreciate that John was honest and he said he didn't know. But now we do know. The reason man has to ask God to intervene and to work on his behalf and and the reality that God can't do anything or won't do anything outside of what man asks him to do is because you have authority. Mankind has authority, not God. He gave it to mankind. And Jesus, when he left, said, occupy till I come. What does that mean? That means use the authority that's been given to us to grow God's family and to operate in the earth as God would do himself. Remember Jesus instructed his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught, the, taught his 12 disciples in the 70, whoever else was part of his entourage. Jesus taught people to pray that the will of God would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Well, we know what things are like in heaven, don't we? There's nothing that can hurt or destroy mankind. There's no devil. There's no sickness. There's no disease. So heaven, the the small picture we have of heaven, tells us enough, informs us enough to know what the character and the nature of God is and what God wanted wanted the earth to be apart from sin. Jesus, unless he's telling us to pray contrary to the will of God, Jesus told his disciples to pray that the will of God would be done here, now, on the earth, just like it was in heaven. Folks, the devil is not a problem in heaven. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This ties on to the last few verses of chapter 4, where Barnabas is prompted by the Holy Ghost to give a large sum of money to the church of Jerusalem. And it creates a place for him in the church leadership. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. 
and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy or agreeing to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? This is the word authority. Was it not in your authority? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Then the story goes on to tell us how Sapphira comes in several uh, hours later. I guess it took her a while to get fixed for church. She comes in and, and Peter asks her about the price of the land that they sold. She says what her husband said about it and she falls down and dies instantly too. Folks, offering took on a whole new meaning after this event. But what I want you to see is what Peter asked him, asked Ananias. This is in verse uh, 4. He said, while it remained, wasn't the property under your authority? Aren't you the one that decided what to do with it and how to do it? And even after you sold it, wasn't the sale, the proceeds from the sale, under your authority? Now, folks, what I want you to see is, I want you to see how authority is spoken of in a non-spiritual, non-miraculous uh, way authority is spoken of as a decision Peter said while the money was in your hand wasn't it under your authority to do with what you want the things that we have authority over and I, I'm maybe I'm just preaching to myself on this I don't know but the more you study something the bigger and bigger it gets and if you're not careful, the more you study something, the more complicated it gets. And so I think we look at exercising authority over the devil and exercising authority over sickness and disease, doing the works of Jesus and, and that type of thing. I think it's real easy to get to a place where you think about exercising authority over the works of the devil is this big thing over here. When we fail to recognize that we exercise authority in the small areas of life every day. Peter is simply asking Ananias, weren't you the one that decides what you do with your money or your land? Why'd you have to lie to the Holy Ghost about it? Now the things that we have authority over, the things that we know we have authority over, it doesn't take some great move of faith to exercise I've got a key to my car. The key gives me the authority to drive it. It gives me the power to drive it. And I have never yet gone to the driver's side door of my car and taken a knee and said, Oh, Father, if it be thy will, let my car start up and take me where I want it to go. No, I decide when to use my car. I decide how to use my car. And I think so often we complicate things in such a manner where we don't even recognize that the simple things in life, the things that we take for granted, the reason why we take them for granted is because we're the ones with authority. We decide. Exercising authority over sickness and disease is the same decision as exercising authority over your money. It's the same. E.W. Kenyon used to say it this way. He used to talk about how the name of Jesus belongs to us. And it doesn't take faith to use something that belongs to you. And he's right. The name of Jesus belongs to you. It is within your purview to, to use it, to choose to use it, according to what the Bible says we should use it for. Now, that doesn't mean that we, because something belongs to us, we can use it in uh, an inappropriate manner. 
they use, Ananias and Sapphira used their authority in a pretty inappropriate manner. The only thing that makes sense about this story to me is if Ananias and Sapphira are trying to gain a position in the church like Barnabas got because of his gift. Otherwise, why is the story of Barnabas in there connected to this? So they're trying to do a good thing with the wrong motive and didn't even get credit for the offering they gave. It's all about heart issues, folks. It's all about the condition of our heart. Therefore, we would have to say and have to conclude that when Jesus gave authority first to the 12, Luke chapter 10, where Jesus gave authority, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 9, where Jesus gave authority to the 12 disciples and gave them power, King James says, literally it's the word authority. He gave them authority over sickness and disease to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. Well, if Jesus didn't have the authority, he sure couldn't give it to somebody else. But maybe an important point is to realize that he's giving that authority to spiritually dead men. Now, folks, however unworthy you may have felt throughout your life concerning the things of God and concerning the things the Bible tells us he's done for us, you, at your lowest point, at your most unworthy moment, because of your wrong actions or wrong behavior or whatever, you think makes you unworthy. You were light years ahead of the disciples because they couldn't even be part of the kingdom of God at that time. You remember Jesus talking about John the Baptist? Jesus responded to some people that were questioning him about John, his cousin John the Baptist. Jesus answered and said that John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets of the old covenant that means greater than Elijah Elisha Moses now the reason that is I think is because of the message that John the Baptist had to bring the message of the one that's coming after me the Messiah is right right behind me that message made him greater He didn't do any of the miracles that Moses did or Elijah did or Elisha did or things like that. Yet Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. But do you remember what he added to that? He then said, but the person who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is above John. Well, that's you and me. So however unworthy the devil tries to make us believe we are or accuses us of being or whatever, you're light years ahead of what the disciples had, certainly. And you're even greater than the Old Testament prophets. That ought to be good enough to get God to move, shouldn't it? You see what some of these Old Testament people did. Like Abraham, who got God down to 10 people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you can just find 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? God said, yeah. Well, there weren't 10 righteous people. But that was a pretty gutsy move for Abraham to stand before God and whittle him down to 10 people. And look at the the miracles that some of these Old Testament prophets performed. Moses' part in the Red Sea. The Bible says the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the Old Testament prophets. It's greater than the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, which was John. I don't think we've got a clear picture yet of what our relationship with God really means. I just don't think we've got a clear picture, or at least see it as clearly as I want to see it. I'll just put it on me. I think our relationship means a lot more to God 
than it has meant to us because of our lack of understanding. So what do we have authority over? Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Every believer has authority over the devil in his own life. Every believer has authority over the devil in his personal life. That means authority over all the devil's works. That means sickness and disease. That means we have a right to decide how things are going to be. Now, I know that freaks out some denominational folks. I get that. But it's clear as day in the Bible. Furthermore, we have authority to cast out devils. Or we'll say it this way, to exercise dominion over the devil and over sickness and disease. In the following of the command that Jesus gave us to make disciples of other people. So authority over the devil and authority over sickness and disease are an integral part a necessary part, a real important part of reaching the lost and bringing them into the family of God. Additionally, the Bible talks about in James chapter 5, is any sick among you? Let them, the sick, call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. So the church, the local church, not just the church at large, the local church has a mandate to heal the sick. Well, we couldn't fulfill that unless we had authority over sickness and disease, could we? Now, it'd be nice if I could stand here and say, just talking about me as an individual, if I could stand here and say, Jesus appeared to me and told me that I have authority over everybody's sickness and everybody's disease. Wouldn't that be wonderful? then I could operate in the same way that Jesus operated on the earth and just simply find faith for, uh, from people that were willing to believe and heal the sick everywhere I went. But I don't have that. I think sometimes we've gone to extremes. You've got a certain segment of the church that believes man has no authority over the devil. And then you've got some people that have come to the realization of authority being given to mankind, thinking they've got the same authority that Jesus had when he was here on the earth in total. And that hadn't worked either. See, the idea that some people have is that if there was anybody here healing the sick on the earth like Jesus did when he was here, then we could just go into the hospitals and empty them out. Well, if we use Jesus' ministry as an example... We'd have to go to the hospitals and find people that believe first. So the ditch on both sides of the road is the important thing for us to avoid. We don't want to be on the ditch on the one side of the road that says we don't have authority over anything. And we don't want to be on the ditch in the, uh, in the ditch on the other side of the road which says whatever we say works because we say it. It didn't even work for Jesus that way when he was here. He marveled at the unbelief in Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty work because of it. Well, we're not going to outdo Jesus. If it took faith in Jesus, think about this, folks. If it took people to believe in Jesus for the power of God to work, then why would we expect it not to take people to believe in Jesus now in order for the same power to work today? You understand what I'm saying? So how far does our authority go? Well, that's a tough answer. That's a tough question to answer. I know our authority goes completely regarding us in our personal lives. I see other indications how far our authority goes regarding the church. But again, that takes faith.
But the key thing that I want you to leave with today, the takeaway today, just as the takeaway in Jesus' ser- uh, Sermon on the Mount, they marveled at Jesus' doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority. That seems to me to be one of the, if not the most important thing for every believer to have access to and hold on to today. You and I should be very, very aware and meditating constantly on the fact that God wants us to hold authority in this earth. That's going to mean setting other people free. That's going to mean living in freedom ourselves. It's going to mean walking in victory over every aspect of the devil's work. And that's the authority that we've been given for sure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us and your will through your word. We thank you, Father, that because we've been born into the kingdom of God, made new by the blood of Jesus, we thank you that because we are made righteous through his sacrifice, we have been given as your sons and your daughters, we have been given absolute authority over the devil in our own lives. So Satan, we serve notice on you. We will not be controlled. We will not be dominated by you. We will not be hindered by you. We take authority over sickness and disease. We take authority over lack and poverty, for that is of you. We take authority over every evil work that you could possibly bring into our lives. And through the words of our mouth given to us as human beings on this earth we speak the word of God to break your power. We declare that because we've been set free by the Son of God and His sacrifice we are free in every respect. Free indeed as the scripture says. Father we decide To believe and act on your word. So we declare that we're free. We declare that victory is ours. We declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare that the life of God. Permeates every fiber of our being. And saturates every cell of our body. And quickens us. And that life of God drives out every sickness and every disease. Every trace of every symptom. Of sickness and disease in Jesus name. We declare that we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we refuse to yield or give ground to the evil one. We say, because God's word says, we are free. Now, Father, we ask you by the Holy Ghost. Jesus said that the Holy Ghost would bring all things to our remembrance that Jesus said and show us things to come. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to show us how far our authority goes in every given situation with every person in our families or every person that we're associated with. Show us, Father, how far we can use that authority or how best to use that authority to be a blessing to others. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. Willing vessels to be used of God to set people free. In Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I mean that sincerely. I really think that every one of us ought to pray and meditate on and actively pursue God 
to reveal to us how far our authority goes in every situation. It'll be different with different people. It'll be different with the different family members. But God left us here on the earth to exercise authority according to his will. Well, we know what his will is. We see that in Jesus' example. And Jesus said he wants us to do the same works as he did. So I think we ought to be constantly open to and seeking the Lord about how to use our authority most effectively. God wants people to see him through you or in you. But we have to first recognize that he wants to use us. Amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand. Say this after me. I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I have been given authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt me. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here with us. Come on back for Healing School tonight at 6 if you can. And have a great